Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And in fact, we've got lots of questions from the rest of the world today as well as the uh, UK coming up. So yeah, if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to reflect on a theme that we have together explored in the past, Um, but it's come back big time, actually. And that theme is freedom as a political weapon. And the context of me returning to it is that Biden has seized the term uh, in the video that announced he was standing for the second term, uh, freedom came up six times. Uh, It was his theme in a way that I find very interesting and illuminating. And it's interesting to compare with um, Keir Starmer's current pitch, which we will do uh, in our time together. We've got some fantastic questions from all of you on a a remarkable range of themes, all delving deep, um, and we'll come to them and say lots of um, different countries uh, represented as well, which is always great. Um, Before all of that, um, notices, of course, the big one, for those of you on the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics, and why aren't you all? on the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics. There's a lot going on there. Um, Anyway, for those of you who are, um, we've got our first ever uh, live Zoom together on Wednesday at seven o'clock. So do join in. It will be um, uh, a kind of opening reflection from me. Then we'll have a kind of wider discussion. And uh, yeah, it'll be great. I'm really looking forward to it. So that's Wednesday live at seven. And if you're on Patreon, you'll be sent a link and loads of other bonus podcasts on that site as well. Meanwhile, uh, live at King's Place in London, Rock and Roll Politics, Monday, May the 15th. It will be the last show in London for the spring-summer period um, uh, up until the uh, Edinburgh Festival and beyond. So please do try and come along. Uh, Obviously, the themes are determined by whatever is happening then. So, you know, we delve deep on the day or evening. Um, But one of the themes I'm going to explore is um, the differences and similarities between Labour now as it approaches the 2024 election and Labour in the build-up to 97. And I think it sheds quite a lot of light on uh, uh, the Starmer leadership. Uh, But that might be dumped, depending on what's happening. You know, we've got the local elections at the end of this week, and they will, um, in their own way, reframe the way the leaders are currently being perceived. They tend to do that, rightly or wrongly. So anyway, but May the 15th, do come along if you can, uh, and we will have some fun as well. Um, And I say the last one in London before the Edinburgh Festival. Oh, yeah. Tickets are on sale for Rock and Roll Politics Live at the Edinburgh Festival on the Edinburgh Fringe website. More about Edinburgh as we approach that kind of epic festival. So there we are. Those are the notices. And now uh, over to freedom. Now, uh, if you remember in the dim and distant 
past. Um, I have always been fascinated by the way the Conservatives have seized that term freedom for themselves, for their party. Uh, it was done most explicitly by Margaret Thatcher from 1979 onwards, the election of 1979. Freedom is the defining theme of the Conservative Party manifesto and her opening personal introduction to it. Um, and she basically defined freedom as freedom from the state. The state she characterised as uh, being uh, a, a stifler on freedom. It stifled freedom, um, and she was going to free the people by getting the state off their backs. And that framing really has been in place ever since. Um, the Conservatives have that term for themselves. New Labour didn't try and seize it back. Um, and so far, Keir Starmer hasn't either, though I'm going to advise him, uh, if he's taking notes on this, you know, sitting in his study taking notes, um, that uh, he, he, he should do so in the way that Biden has. Um, now, it's really interesting what has happened to freedom in British politics. It wasn't always a conservative term. Thatcher had an instinctive capacity to communicate. She wasn't uh, taught. Um, uh, it was there. And, and she believed this as well. The, the, the right are at ease with putting the case for freedom, as I say, in an anti-state way. But uh, I know it's sort of almost taboo now because it all sounds so dated and in the past, but it really isn't. Uh, the, the Labour leader who seized freedom very astutely in a general election was Clem Attlee. Uh, in uh, 45. Uh, if you remember, Churchill kind of misjudged things, as he often did in election campaigns. He wasn't a great campaigner, actually. Um, but uh, he, accused, he said, if you vote for Labour, you're going to get the equivalent of the Gestapo ruling Britain. And uh, in other words, the usual thing, Labour threatened freedom in a very fundamental way. Uh, Thatcher made the same argument uh, many years later. And Attlee went for Churchill and claimed it was the state that could make people free. And this is what Biden has done. And it's really interesting because, you know, here in uh, Britain, uh, Biden is kind of somewhat lazily described as a centrist, a term that, as you know, I think is so imprecise to be meaningless or quite dangerous in its imprecision. Um, but Biden has always been interested in the idea of the state as an agent to free people, to give people freedom uh, from worry about their health, freedom uh, to, to be worried about their work, etc., etc. And uh, in a way, he's famously interested in this. The video that he's put out, which I'm going to come to in a minute to announce his second term, is not a new departure, because in this country, Biden became famous in the late 1980s for lifting Neil Kinnock's speech from the 87 general election. And that speech was Kinnock's attempt to try and uh, win the argument over freedom, the great sort of 
ideological debate of the 80s. Um, and it was a brilliant speech. It was the speech where Kinnock posed the question, why am I the first Kinnock in a thousand generations of Kinnock, the one to go to university? Was it because all the others were thick? He asked the question. Of course not. But the state gave him the freedom that his predecessors could not enjoy. The state was the agent of his freedom to fulfil his potential. That was part of the argument. Biden was gripped by it because uh, the same debate was happening in America. The right had seized the term freedom, whereas Biden recognised that the state could free people up. Now, the reason this term is so potent is no one in the electorate in Britain or America or anywhere else is going to be argue against freedom. You know, if the BBC went to do a vox pop in Basildon, say, you know, one of the marginal seats, you're not going to get someone saying on the vox pop where they desperately try and balance those completely contrived exercises. And no one's going to come and say, I'm against all this freedom business. I don't want to be free. I want to be completely incarcerated. I don't want to be free. They're all going to say, oh, yeah, freedom. You know, free the people. Yeah. Um, it's been a great weapon. For the Tories, it's one of the reasons why they win most elections. People go to the polls thinking they are on their side in wanting to give them freedom. And uh, Biden recognises this. Now, here is a really interesting thing. The Biden's uh, use of the term in that video has fascinated American columnists. Um, and one of them who has written about it is E.J. Dion. Now, he's really interesting because Dion uh, was very interesting. He was around for the Clinton period. He was quite an influence uh, on people like David Miliband in terms of his approach uh, to analysis, E.G. Dion's analysis um, of centre-left American politics in the uh, mid-1990s. Anyway, he's written about Biden's decision to make freedom his theme. And as I say, it's a decision which has echoes with his fascination with the Kinnock speech of 1987. And this is how E.J. he's written a column for the Washington Post on it. And thank you, Neil Stockley, one of the uh, members of our cooperative, who alerted me to the Dion column uh, via Twitter. Uh, and he opens it by saying, when President Biden announced in a video last week that he was seeking re-election, he opened the possibility that the 2024 campaign will involve a genuine, perhaps even searching philosophical debate over the meaning of freedom. Now, um, he then goes on to point out, he mentions it six or seven times, um, and uh, goes on then to explain, for much of the past half century, freedom has largely been a Republican battle cry. Democrats and progressives have been much more inclined to talk about justice, equality, democracy, fairness, or community. 
In the Republicans' telling, freedom is largely defined by hands-off government when it comes to business regulation and low taxes. Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan, the political founders of contemporary conservatism, were the poets of this sort of liberty. A campaign biography of Goldwater, the defeated 1964 Republican nominee, who was also a proud Air Force pilot, carried the jaunty subtitle, Freedom is His Flight Plan. Now, as ever, British politics is, you know, has echoes with American politics. It has been here uh, the term that is most associated with Thatcher and her Thatcherite successors in the Conservative Party. E.J. Dion points out Biden is doing something beyond the obvious of um, freedom from some of the sort of areas that... Um, uh, right-wing Republicans want to kind of censor or ban. It's much more than that. Uh, he is doing something here as well, and here he may owe a debt to one of his opponents in the 2020 Democrat primaries. This is E.J. Dion writing. Now, when Peter Buttigieg announced his candidacy in April 2019, one of his central themes was the need for progressives to reclaim the idea of freedom. Let me tell you, Buttigieg said then, freedom doesn't belong to one political party. He went on to argue that healthcare, consumer protection, racial justice, LGBTQ, labour and women's rights were all about freedom. The chance to live a life of your choosing in keeping with your values, that's freedom in its richest sense. Um, and so Biden's argument is, Freedom isn't just about freedom from, it's freedom to. Um, and the freedom to live the way you want to live by providing basic services and resources. So that was the essence of the Kinnock speech, by the way, that you have freedom when the state provides you with the resources for you to be free in every sense of that word. And... Um, when I saw the video and read Dion's analysis and other kind of um, comments on it, um, I began to think, yeah, I think Biden, although he's old, and he is old, and it is an issue, um, you know, God, I feel tired and I'm still 25, you know, sometimes. And the demands on a president are huge. Um, they are on a prime minister. It's almost an impossible job. Um, but the term always excites. And it is a way of uh, opening up the opportunity for a debate about the state's benevolent potential. In uh, this country and America, it's very hard to open that one up. Um, uh, even though, actually, recent decades have proven it. Uh, the response to the financial crash in 2008 and the pandemic, without the state, we would all be on our knees if alive. Um, but then the debate lapses again into the usual kind of Thatcherite assumptions in Britain and the same often in America too. Anyway, I've, I've never quite understood why Labour, given, I mean, Attlee was not one of life's most brilliant communicators but the framing of that 45 election has been underestimated in, in the explanations for why Labour won a landslide they were the seen as the party of freedom 
um, and they won. Thatcher, 79, 83, 87. The Tories were going to let the people be free from the state. They won. Um, and it's interesting. Keir Starmer seems to be uh, framing a debate over reform. Um, he gave an interview to The Observer, the headline, I'll be bolder than Blair on public service reform. Now, I don't know whether he was pleased with that headline, whether that was the headline he wanted, but I note there are two things quite often with uh, Keir Starmer when he makes a speech or gives an interview, the word reform and Blair are often in the headline. And it can't be coincidence. Someone in his team is briefing uh, that Starmer is following Blair and without Blair, Blair, but Blair's the model and all the rest of it. Um, now, there are reasons why these things happen. Partly, and we've discussed this many times on the cooperative, um, the tax and spend pre-election debate in Britain is so perverse, um, it can become a problem for Labour to pledge anything that costs money. Instead of it appearing like a promise, it's uh, portrayed as a threat. And as a result, uh, Starmer and Reeves are doing what Blair and Brown did pre-97. Not a halfpenny will be committed without explaining where the money comes from. And because you don't want to go into an election putting up many taxes um, in advance, uh, there isn't much money. And therefore, you focus on things like reform, giving power away, because it doesn't cost anything. I understand all of that. Um, and also, when you go a bit further, because, as again, we've discussed many times here, to repeat a formula from 1997 or 2001 or something would be crazy, um, given the very differing circumstances. Uh, Starmer doesn't quite do that. He knows, I think, that just uttering the word reform in the British media gets plaudits, all the sort of self-proclaimed centrist columnists or Blairite devotees start purring, ah, reform, ah, at last, a lovely reform, reform. Uh, every leader anywhere backs reform. The essence of the debate should be what kind of reform. Um, and this is interesting, you know, uh, so to go on to the Observer piece, uh, Keir Starmer today pledges to lead a radical reforming Labour government that is bolder than Blair's on public service reform as he announces plans to accelerate house building and get younger people onto the property ladder. In an interview with The Observer before Thursday's local elections, Starmer insists he will more than match Blair for radical ideas on overhauling public services. This will be a bold, reforming government. But then when, as we must do in our time together always, you delve a little deeper, um... It, it, it's a different agenda, actually. The language is out there, and oh, yeah, they all start purring, all these uh, columnists uh, on, on the centre ground. So uh, I think we can go beyond what the Blair government did on public services, because I think there is unfinished business there. So that kind of, oh, yeah, more, you know, more of the kind of uh, in, in, in erratic reforms when you analyse the substance of them from that era. It, it, but no, not necessarily. Um, Starmer says this does not mean a further expansion of the private sector's role as happened under Blair's new Labour. So that's quite an interesting qualification. 
you know, that the, the uh, health reforms under Blair were partly about bringing in the private sector in different ways um, to bring in a degree of or greater degree of internal competition. The problem was how you do it, the mediating agencies involved, whether it was a level playing field. It was all it became incredibly complex uh, and expensive, actually. Um, but he's not planning that. So he uses the term reform, and that's enough to get everyone excited who are nostalgic about that period. Um, but he's not going to do that. He's going to develop services to meet today's needs with greater focus on prevention. Well, preventative care is an obvious route forward. Look at the smoking ban. Uh, didn't cost a halfpenny and will have saved uh, much demand on the NHS. Um but then you go back to the usual briefing. It's understood, Starmer has been in recent discussions with the former Prime Minister about how to approach the challenges of a first term. There is a tendency, I don't know who it is in Starmer's office, whenever Keir gives an interview or makes a speech, they brief that he's been in conversation with Blair. It happened at the party conference uh, last autumn where he switched on the Radio 4 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock bulletin. Keir Starmer will address the Labour Party conference today and make several references to Tony Blair as the way forward. Um, this is crazy. It really is crazy. I mean, you could be, you know, an admirer or critic of Blair, but no, no one with Starmer's interests in heart should so frame him in the past in this way. So it's slightly all over the place. So when you delve deep, um, the policy agenda is, well, I'm going to explore this much more at King's Place on May the 15th, um, is, is rightly different. I mean, it'd be crazy to go in with a sort of similar policy programme as uh, 97. You know, the emphasis on house building uh, with a target, I think, of 300,000 houses is uh, very ambitious. I mean, it contradicts, I think, to some extent, this focus on giving power away. Because if you give power away, on the whole, uh, local agencies would decide not to build the homes because it's unpopular. Um, there has to be central direction to bring about some of these objectives. Um, but the use of technology in the NHS, preventative care, you know, who's, who can be um, opposed to these things are very good things in themselves. Um, but the framing is interesting. You see, freedom, uh, Biden, um, is a very sort of confident grab of a Republican term, but d doing it in a very different way to show how the state can free up. And I think there's, uh, I, I think Starmer should seize the term. And uh, as uh, Attlee did, I'm not saying, by the way, follow the 45 government. I don't think that you should do any of this following previous election winning successes. You've got to frame it as it is now. But freedom should be a term that a left of centre party is wholly at ease with. Um, uh, because in a way, it kind of explains its driving purpose, I think. And Starmer does talk about active government, so he should. If, if you don't believe in active government, you should definitely not be in uh, the Labour Party at all. Um, now, that is a kind of vague term, and there is still a lot of imprecision around. Um, but I think, to be honest, freedom sounds more exciting than reform. I know every, every, everyone has to reform. And in a pre-election period, there will be a focus on that with Labour because that doesn't imply a public spending commitment. But um, there has to be some 
greater level of excitement. I know Janan Ganache wrote a piece saying um, the last thing Starmer needs is vision and all the rest of it. It, it, it. You know, people don't aren't bothered by that. And John Rental, who is obsessed with Tony Blair, sees everything through the prism of Tony Blair, retweeted it excitedly and said, "This is it." But you do need a sense of a vision um, to accompany policies, especially if those policies are going to be fairly incremental at a time of epic challenge and crisis, uh, much greater than 97. So over to that elderly figure in the United States, Biden. He's on to something. Now, having said that, I bet Biden now loses the the election um, using freedom. I don't think he will. I don't. Uh, it, it's a potent term. And if you look, whoever seizes it and makes sense of it, you don't do it in a shallow way. Um, it's not another case of you know going around with a Union Jack to show you're patriotic. It's deep. You explain freedom from a different perspective and then engage in a debate about ideas as well as these incremental policies that we're going to raise a non-DOM tax to transform Britain. Um it, it, you, you then get into values and it's been lacking in British politics and good for Biden for injecting it into American politics. Of course, it'll be a dirty campaign, as E.J. Dion points out. But there is a bit of value-driven politics around freedom. After those reflections, over to all of you. And if you want to join in our discussions, uh, it's steverick14 at icloud.com. And uh, many have, actually, in recent days. And I'm now going to go over uh, to some of those of you who have. Uh, Charles Prince uh, is joining in a debate. I'll begin with Charles because it's about the NHS, which obviously is linked to reform and so on. Uh, Charles Prince uh, writes, I very much look forward to your podcast and have signed up to Patreon. Oh, great. I normally listen while walking my dog in Richmond Park in London. And what a, that's a, somehow I find that image reassuring. Um, uh, walking in the dog in Richmond Park while listening to all of us reflecting and trying to make sense of it all. And now you are making sense of it all, uh, or trying to, uh, Charles, as you listen walking your dog, it becomes surreal. Um, Anyway, Charles, I can't claim to have any specialist knowledge or experience when it comes to resolving the funding issues surrounding the NHS. And I've noticed you've been discussing the problems in recent podcasts with questions about whether a German-style funding system should be adopted, etc. It is, of course, a very complicated subject, no easy answers. But I can't help wonder, along with many others, I suspect, that instead of continuously looking for more funding, wouldn't it be better to look and see where costs can be cut, or at least where the available funds can be put to better use? The money will run out eventually, and by all accounts that day is fast approaching. With this in mind, I came across Tony Benn's speech to Parliament in 1995 with his analogy that the NHS was like a boat with instead of eight rowing and one steering, it had one rowing and eight steering. Um, Those who work in the NHS always claim it's more efficient than many in other countries, but I find that hard to believe. Surely someone has to make some hard decisions over the next year and reduce the Byzantine management system. 
Uh, yeah, that is part of it, I think, uh, Charles. By the way, it is Byzantine, partly as a result of some of the reforms. Um, some of the Blairite reforms involved many more layers and mediating agencies as the private sector was brought in. This multiply that by about 2,000 with the Cameron and Lansley uh, reforms that had to be paused and then started up again. Um, and so it is multi-layered and uh, the lines of accountability are often very unclear. And you know, whenever you ask someone, so how does the system work? And it's like at the BBC. So, so you, you, you know, you meet some senior manager of the BBC. So, so what's your relationship with the output? And when they begin where it's all a bit complicated, you know, there's kind of uh, trouble ahead. Um, and, but I have to say, Charles, you know, and indeed, as Keir Starmer, in fairness, always says, he's quite clever on this. He says, of course, money's an issue, and then moves on to focus on reform. Um, but money is an issue. We do not invest at the same level as equivalent countries, and we get less back as a result. And one of the issues is staffing shortages, and you have to pay for staff. Um, you know, you can do the technology. Tony Blair's like, you know, you know uh, we're in a technological revolution, right? You know, so we apply that to the NHS. Yes, yes, yes. But that doesn't answer the issue about staffing shortages. I mean, it does partly because you could do with fewer staff, perhaps. But when you need an operation, you need doctors, nurses, you need to see a GP. Um, and that costs money. So the money is an issue. But you're right, there are other ways of doing things. Um, but it depends what reform is applied. That's why I get so worked up about the ubiquity of the term reform, as if there's only one reform. You know, the debate should be how, but yeah, it could be done more efficiently. Thank you very much. Enjoy the walk. Um, Suzanne McCarthy writes, while I listen to your podcast avidly, I've never sent in a question. But while running on the treadmill this morning, while listening to you discussing uh, Boris Johnson and the latest book on him, yeah, I was reflecting on the serialization of Anthony Seldon's book on Boris Johnson last week. It made me wonder if there is that much difference between our own media and Fox News. The Fox journalists and presenters were very aware, as discovery of documents has proved in the recent court case, that what they were saying to their audience was what their audience wanted to hear rather than what was the truth. Your comment that those working in the UK media were aware that Johnson's leadership was chaotic and shambles, yet presented him as a titan, is there very much difference? In some ways, I think, uh, Suzanne, it's more sinister because, in a way, everybody knows where Fox News is coming from. Um, and it has, you know, a clear perspective. It's almost defined by that perspective. Um, but here sometimes, you, you know, the Times... Even the mail have a huge impact on the BBC and the way it feels it can report things. And, you know, I just remember vividly when um, that bleak landmark of the pandemic of 100,000 deaths was reached, um, you know, the mail, the sun kind of put a photo out of Boris Johnson looking down as if he was a sort of priest-like figure. Whereas if a Labour Prime Minister had presided over that, they would have been destroyed. I've got absolutely no doubt they'd have been forced out. Um, so, yeah, I think w w w the British, you cannot understand politics without following the British media. 
and and the way it influences the way politicians are perceived. Now, uh, thank you very much. Uh, good luck on the treadmill um, and listening while you're working out. Very good. Talk about, I was going to say mixing profit with pleasure, but mixing profit with profit, if you know what I mean. Anyway, thank you for, uh, for writing in for the first time. Uh, now, we are going to have a bit of a debate here about uh, economic growth and climate change. Um, we've, I've, I haven't heard from him for some time, but Nick Ratcliffe. Now, I met him at the Edinburgh Festival. He very politely bollocked me for not doing enough on uh, climate change. So from the Edinburgh Festival, uh, via Nick almost, we did a kind of thing on uh, climate change. But he, he's admonishing me for always saying, when looking at the issue of economic growth, who's against economic growth? Um, and by the way, I'm a, a, a fan of the mission statement, the one of the five mission statements of Starmer's being economic growth, because what that will do is mean that every element of government policymaking, one of the questions posed will be, does this help to grow the economy? Um, and quite often government becomes fractured and unfocused. With that as a focus, that's um, not in itself a solution. Um, but I think the focus will help, actually, given our anemic growth. But Nick sees things in an entirely different way. He says, as the Cree Indians are supposed to have said, when the last tree is cut down, the last fish eaten and the last stream poisoned, you will realise that you cannot eat money. Um, he doesn't think economic growth is a good in itself if we are basically destroying the planet. Uh, he cites John Byrne Murdoch, the FT uh, data correspondent. Where would you, oh, this is on the, the broader issue of economic growth as the green argument, but then he says, where would you rather live? A society where the rich are extraordinarily rich and the poor are very poor, or one where the rich are merely very well off, but even those on the lowest incomes also enjoy a decent standard of living. Um, yeah, uh, he says that the Bern Murdoch summary is that Britain and the US, isn't it interesting again how Britain and the US are linked? Britain is becoming a poor state in the United States, an equivalent of a, a one of the poorest states in the United States. Uh, anyway, Bern Murdoch's summary, Nick says, is Britain and the US are poor societies with some very rich people. Um, yeah, uh, but Nick, surely economic growth in the right hands, in the right government, could lead to poorer people becoming better off. But I don't see how you get that without economic growth. I don't know a society where, um, you know, those on lower incomes or no income at all have flourished when there is no growth. But anyway, Nick says, next time, you find yourself about to say everyone's in favour of economic growth. Perhaps you could add, except, of course, that tree-hugging social justice warrior nutter in the Edinburgh branch of the collective. God, so every time, Nick, I say, you know, when both Starmer and Sunak go into the next election saying, my goal is economic growth. And when I say, well, who's against economic growth? I'm going to have to say, get in touch with Nick in Edinburgh. He's against it. Anyway, thank you very much uh, for trying to keep me on the straight and narrow or the not straight and narrow. Um, and um, yeah, there's quite a lot on this. Joel Rawlings has written on the same thing. He said, I was listening to your latest episode while driving back from a trip to the Essex countryside. 
Fing Wing Ho Wick, a lovely walk soundtracked by nightingales and cuckoos. Uh, this is more romantic than the walk around Richmond Park. Uh, yeah, when you had a question about the uh, Extinction uh, Rebellion protest last week and the coverage it received next to none, compared to many news stories, climate change receives little mainstream uh, coverage or on podcasts such as your own or Oh God, What Now? and some of the other... I'm not going to name some of the others. I mean, you know, that, that's enough. Um, anyway, you're right. It, it doesn't get that much focus. I guess because, wrongly in my view, climate change is not seen as being a political subject. Anyway, uh, the question got me thinking, why groups such as XR or climate uh, change itself struggle to get any positive media coverage? Um, and he thinks one of them might be the strategy of uh, no longer aiming to cause uh, 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 problems and nuisances, uh, Joel puts it. Um, and that therefore they don't get their message across, uh, maybe, although I think, I don't know, pissing people off might not necessarily be the best way of getting the message across, Joel. Um, though, you know, I, I know it, it can generate headlines. Um, then uh, the question of balance, you have to have someone like Rhys Mogg or what's Julia Hartley Brewer, God help us, with her countering things or i'll tell you it will enhance your cause if she's the opponent i don't think that's an issue now joe i think you know the bbc even with their obsession with balance and an ill-defined view of what impartiality is um accepts climate change is not an issue of contention it's, it's they've formally done that actually uh, the difficulty, I think you're onto something. De dealing with climate change is hard and is going to be hard. Um, reporting on anything that may mean people need to make sacrifices gives the opportunity for those reporting facts to be called doomsters and gloomsters. Yeah, I wonder about that. When Nick in Edinburgh said, Steve, why don't you do more on climate change? Um, I've, I've thought a lot about it. And I think perhaps one of the reasons is, you know, to be honest, when we all get together once or twice, once, no, twice a week, um, I want it to be quite light as well as delving deep. And maybe, you know, on one subconscious level, you might well be right that I've kept clear for that reason. I don't know. I don't know. Um, so, um, but where I think uh, you are both wrong, Joel and Nick, is that, Although it's very hard politically for elected politicians because of the potential for short-term hits, uh, no party will go into the election, election calling for petrol to go up, for example, in price, though they will, I think, stick to the 2030 deadline for getting rid of petrol cars. Um, I, I do think it is high up the uh, political agenda not as high as it should be and not as high in terms of media coverage um but yeah it's there but i have analyzed constantly why i don't focus on it more and i don't know the answer joel but anyway i folk you know uh two very meaty contributions have featured today and will do again so thank you both uh yeah do keep in touch on this issue and any other um now, uh, driver Andy here. Yeah, white van man, our uh, cooperatives driver, Andy. 
Um, he, he, I, I like the way he delves deep by kind of looking at data and stuff. He was the one who noted um, the BBC changed their headlines from not covering a story to, first of all, putting it out there on the website and then leading with it when the mail landed and put the same subject on the front page. Anyway, Driver Andy says, if there's any difference at all between uh, the conservative... Uh, what are they called? The Conservative Democratic Organisation. And he gives he sent in with me uh, their poster to some grim-looking event on Saturday the 13th of May. Take back, take control conference. Uh, a black tie gala dinner with speakers. Blimey, who are they? Oh, my God. Nadine Doris, Rhys Mogg. Half of GB News are there presenting. Um, Pretty Patel's there, you know. Anyway, Andy poses the interesting question. Is there any difference at all between this and the Reform UK's agenda? Surely it will only be in the typeface. I've thought for a while that both sides will be having back-channel exchanges and would love to hear your opinion on whether some on the Tory right will make would be what would be a very short walk, especially if local elections work out badly for them. Um, yeah... I'm not sure, Andy, whether that will happen. I don't think reform uh, without the charisma of Farage are a strong enough magnet yet. Um, this kind of rightward drift in a section of the Tory party um, is, uh, is just happening on its own, really. Um, it's to do with Brexit and a view of English nationalism. Um, and it's not really, I think... Uh, driven out of a flirtation yet with the Reform Party because the Reform Party doesn't feel significant enough to draw them in. Um, but you're right, they're getting closer. They are getting closer. Uh, our French correspondent, or our, our correspondent in France, Dominique Joule, uh, said, your thoughts on the RAB issue in relation to the lack of a precise definition for bullying struck a chord. Yeah, thank you. Uh, um, I read out some of your reactions at the end of last week, but it's great that I, I thought everyone would disagree with me in my concerns about the imprecise nature of the definition of bullying and how that could um, be very counterproductive in politics and in all other walks of life. I thought you would all disagree. But anyway, Dominica then says, it seems to me that performance management was at the core of Raab's difficulties. And therein lies the nuances and the challenges in pinning these down regarding what qualifies as bullying. Having worked as a head teacher both in England and in a number of countries in Europe, one of my tasks was the recruitment and retention of staff. The latter required a mixture of providing encouragement when all was well and support when problems were encountered. Any trained manager would tell you that intimidation and or humiliation of staff will produce only resentment, anger and a refusal to engage. Yeah, and, and she goes on, so given the findings of the investigation into his working practices, it would appear that Mr. Raab was quite oblivious to these basic principles of management. See, Raab didn't exactly, Dominique, uh, Raab didn't achieve anything as a minister. Therefore, one of the reasons for that, presumably, is he didn't get the best out of the senior figures working with him. It's not the only reason. It was whether the policies were workable and what he was up to and doing. Um, and if you don't get the best, surely a prime minister should turn around and say, right, you're not doing it, you're out. Now, the fact that uh, Sunak didn't uh, says a lot about the political context in which he is leading. Um, but 
this term bullying as a reason for dumping him, I remain uh, uneasy with. Now, talking about imprecise terms, for new listeners, imprecision in British politics is a danger. Uh, we've looked at some already today. Reform keeps on coming up. Um, and bullying is another. Anyway, Cathy Mears writes, uh, my suggestion for the next meaningless political phrases, um, which apparently she has heard uh, Sunak utter, delivering what the people want, or my focus is on delivery. Without knowing what is being delivered and who the people are who want whatever it might be, uh, it all appears energetic without in reality having a clue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've heard it before. Delivery, brilliant example again of an imprecise term. What's being delivered? How? Is it the most effective means? Um, these are the debates of politics, but just to say I believe in delivery, like I believe in reform, absolutely destroys grown-up debate and leads to bad reform and bad delivery, depending on what's being delivered, which isn't explained. Imprecise terms. Thank you very much, uh, Cathy. Theo Roos writes, um, long-time listener. Oh, great, Theo. Um, uh, do you ever watch the explainer videos on BBC News Online hosted by Ross Atkins? Um, yeah, I do. Um, he says, please publicise them to your listeners. Um, I bet there's a load of listeners who already do watch them. And it is an example. You know, the BBC, those layers of managers have endless meetings of what the BBC should be doing and often exchange banalities and cliches. You know, we must be impartial. We must make sure the people are fully reported, you know, after Brexit. You know, uh, banalities which raise 10,000 deeper issues which should be explored but that it's left at that and um but the ross atkin things is exactly the kind of thing an impartial broadcaster can do well um it could do other things well if they were grown up about it like hosting debate but they've gone for question time which is an outrage and in itself uh, uh, makes me struggle to pay a license fee it's so outrageous but ross atkin is brilliant in a very watchable, accessible way, he analyzes without being biased, without imposing his own personality. His own personality comes through through the authority in which he makes sense of an event. And the BBC can do that. And I do recommend them. Uh, they're really good. Uh, Simon Lockyer says, is there any explanation for the attitudes of the government ministers who are the children of those who've benefited from immigration to the UK? How do the likes of Bravman, Patel and Sunak end up denying the chance to others today on immigration that they themselves benefited from? Simon, it remains a fascinating question. One of our uh, emailers last week is a therapist and she uh, and Jewish and said, you know, she knew the self-hating Jew and she thought... Some of that uh, was uh, part of the explanation. But you pose an interesting question. Um, it, it needs, you know, it really does need a therapist to address, not a political journalist. I'm disqualified. But it remains bizarre um, and, and, and weird, frankly. Uh, Fraser Odes uh, says, now that the Tories have enacted the BMP's uh, 2010 manifesto in some respects, 
the BMP's attitude is that there are current. This is from the BMP manifesto that there are currently no legal asylum seekers in Britain uh, today. No legal asylum seekers. Uh, he, uh, well, anyway, given that context, that the Tories are going hard on asylum seekers. Uh, why don't the Lib Dems shift right of centre to sweep up all the more traditional Conservative voters who won't like that kind of uh, attitude that um, Braverman and co have adopted? Um, yeah, well, I know what you mean, Fraser. You know, the, the, so it's the so-called blue wall, where there are quite a lot of Tories who are uh, anti-Brexit and don't like the approach to asylum seekers uh, that is being done partly to appeal to the Red Wall, but partly, as Simon suggests, out of the conviction of Braverman and Co. Um, but you see, Fraser, in the end, a party does have to stick kind of to its uh, values. And also, when you say go right, I suppose you mean economically. So you are liberal on asylum issues to appeal to Tory liberals but go more kind of right on economic policy. I, I don't forget the context of the 2010 coalition where the Lib Dems uh, moved uh, in with uh, a bunch of uh, uh, Tory right-wing radicals um, and when a lot of their supporters had voted them on the basis that they would be to the left of New Labour. So I think it's quite hard for them to do that. Um, uh, now over to the United States, Duncan Davidson in New Hampshire. Uh, oh, yeah, he, he gives a couple of definitions on uh, uh, bullying from uh, various HR professionals. One, disruptive behaviour is inappropriate behaviour that interferes with the functioning and flow of the workforce. Disruptive behaviour in the workplace is behaviour that prohibits others in the workplace from functioning normally. Yeah, uh, absolutely good definitions. Um, I think you have to again explain what is functioning normally, um, what is the action that prevents it. It is it is complicated, even so, I think, um, uh, with your uh, Duncan precise definitions. But it's good to have precise definitions. I know politics is partly about the art of ambiguity, um, especially in a pre-election period. Um, but carry it into government and you get into trouble, big trouble. Over now to Dubai and our Dubai correspondent, Matthew Johnson. Has there been any study done to look at the seats projected to be lost by the Conservatives at the next election to see whether it will swing further to the right or back to a pre-2016 centre-right? Um, yeah, what will the Conservatives be like if they lose the next election and how will they cope with it? Uh, Matthew, as ever, from the sunny... Uh, swimming pool or wherever you are in Dubai, you pose a fascinating question. What happens to the Conservatives if they lose? Um, could, is there any chance that they could uh, revisit One Nation Conservatism, um, which frankly has been lost since 1979 in the Tory party? Um, will they go further to a sort of English nationalist right um, sort of right-wing Trumpite populism or stick with the sort of Sunak-esque Thatcherism? Um, and I, I don't know the answer. It partly depends on the scale of the defeat, if they are defeated. Uh, if it's very narrow, I assume Sunak will stay. 
Um, but even that is not guaranteed if they're, you know, the trauma of being removed for power could trigger all sorts of things. But you pose a fascinating and important question. We have explored it a bit, Matthew, in our interviews with uh, Nick Timothy and Danny Finkelstein and others. We'll be interviewing uh, Tim Bale soon, the, uh, the world expert on the modern Conservative Party in all its layers. Um, but yeah, uh, you remind us of the rich themes. Um, Oh, Claire says, we listen to your podcast regularly, usually over breakfast or lunch, and are sad to see that you never visit the Southwest on your never-ending, well, like, this is me speaking, on my, why am I in the Southwest on my never-ending tour? Um, and uh, yeah, oh, Claire says, if it's all right with all of you, has become an expression much used in our house. Well, I hope everybody politely nods and says, yeah, it's all right with all of us. Um, anyway, Claire, yeah, I don't know why. I've become obsessed uh, about ticket sales and audience sizes and all the rest of it. Um, and so, yeah, Bristol and Exeter and places like that would be perfect. Um, I'm probably going to do a kind of organised, coordinated nationwide tour next year but i've been to be honest claire on this never-ending tour in recent weeks and months um i'm bloody knackered but that's the, that's just emerged from nowhere this never-ending tour it hasn't been organized um and there might be one in which case yeah i'll be in bristol exeter and all these kind of places um thank you very much claire thrilled that you're listening while you're having dinner or breakfast or something um good good time to do it now if it's okay with all of you there are some loads of other brilliant questions there's one from uh david uh perkins on um economic uh policy really um uh the, the sort of nature of kind of wealth buying power and policies without accountability there's a great one um oh yeah no no it's not a question actually uh steve petrie Wright said he liked my impression of sunak last week in the podcast I did spontaneously an impression of Sunak. And Steve says his wife, Alice, thought it was Sunak on the podcast. But the above-mentioned Tim Bale tweeted saying he liked the podcast, but thought the impression was dodgy. So the cooperative is split on that one. And uh, David Perkins, if it's okay with you, you raise deep themes. Uh, we've been going on a long time, so I will revisit them, if that's okay, when there's a bit more space. So yeah, uh, that's it. I hope you had a good uh, bank holiday weekend. Uh, we are going to have to delve very deep in the days and weeks to come. Local elections looming coronation what does that tell us about britain some things i suspect um anyway uh yeah that's for the future uh thanks so much for listening now do leave a review if you can uh the uh, link to book for king's place on may the 15th will be with the blurb for the podcast and to sign up to patreon and i'll see some of you live on our zoom on wednesday night thanks so much bye <laughs>